Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me today, broadcasting from South Bend, Indiana. Um, And welcome to the second episode of Heavier Than I Look, which is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. Not only will this podcast be an outlet to discuss the intricacies associated with disordered eating and body dysmorphia, but it is also aimed to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversation. Heavier Than I Look will attempt to redefine each space that we comprise through introspection and reflection. Before we jump into it, I would like to dedicate this episode to all those who have listened patiently to parts of my story before now. You are the reason that I'm sharing the entirety of my story today. During this episode, I will chronicle the totality of my own story of disordered eating. I haven't shared the whole of my experience with anyone. It has remained private for nearly six years. Eating disorders are an incredibly confining, often hidden disease. Shame manifests itself and takes root, becoming a bold and all-encompassing shadow that discolors your life. The podcast is an attempt to fight against the isolation that eating disorders aggravate. By sharing my story and being upfront about the struggles that I faced and that I still face, I'm hoping to de-isolate my own eating disorder. I'm empowering myself and refusing to succumb to the isolation that my ED demands. So in order to start talking about my eating disorder and the whole journey that it came on, I just want to preface this by saying there are kind of three different chapters to my eating disorder story. Um... And the first chapter starts when I was about eight years old, when I was really pretty young. Um, And that was when I kind of had my first thoughts about my body. And um, when I was younger, growing up, we used to go down to the Jersey Shore every single summer. And I would go with my cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Um, It was like a whole family reunion at the Jersey Shore for a couple weeks every single summer. And my first memory of thinking about my body was at the Jersey Shore, was surrounded by my family, was in those moments. And the first thoughts about my body weren't really negative. They were just noticing differences between my physical appearance and others. Um, Most specifically, I noticed differences between my cousins and I. Um, And I was a very observant child, so these these observations kind of just came naturally to me. And I noticed most specifically that it seemed as if my cousins were very thin and tall and had a lighter skin tone than I did. And I felt that I was chubbier and I was shorter and I had a darker skin tone. I got really tan during the summer. So just all of these kind of differences about my physical appearance in comparison to them. And I observed these differences before I resented them. And I think I started to resent my differences when I was socialized to glorify the thin ideal that society perpetuates in the diet culture that 
still exist today. And this resentment of my differences, the resentment of being a little bit chubbier, shorter, you know, just feeling like I didn't align with what they looked like, this resentment resulted in covering what I thought were problem areas. So at eight years old, I had kind of identified my first problem areas of my body. And at such a young age, that's very troubling. Um, and these, these thoughts about my body and these, these kind of this resentment that had fostered from this age also, I think, were aggravated by just a highly critical voice that I felt that I had learned from my family. As I said before, I was a very, very observant as a child. Um, and when I was surrounded by my family, specifically my extended family at the Jersey Shore, um, I felt a lot of body discomfort. And I always felt very like tight and wound up and almost as if I was on stage or, on a sp- or in the spotlight. And all of these things were very internalized because of my um, observant nature as a child. But these things kind of just made me hyper aware of every single observation. And I thought my differences in my appearance forever separated me from them. A couple years passed and, you know, these thoughts kind of continue, but they go really unheard of, unseen by others. They're just kind of festering in the back of my brain. And then, you know, obviously I go through puberty Um, starting at about 12 or 13 years old, and then, you know, my body changes, which really only heightened the discomfort that I felt because uh, my body had changed, and then all of a sudden, so did my thoughts surrounding my body changed. And these thoughts, these negative thoughts, this resentment was an underlying factor to then an eating disorder developing. I wouldn't say they were the necessarily catalyst for an eating disorder to develop, but they were definitely there and kind of harmlessly and unknowingly aided an eating disorder. And then when I was 14 years old, so I was kind of still, uh, you know, going through puberty at this time and my body was still changing. But at this point, it had pretty much gotten, you know, to where it was going to be and I actually started journaling during this time, which is kind of ironic that I started journaling as uh, I was developing an eating disorder. But it's really helpful now because I got to go back for preparation for this episode. I went back at three different um, journals for the past six years or so, and I got to kind of chronicle my eating disorder journey. And that's why I can share my story now and be very specific about the things that happened to me. So in my first journal entry... I was 14 years old. This was, I believe, 2015. Um, And the very first entry, I wrote that I needed to lose weight in my thighs. And it was my last thought before signing off, signing my name, and closing the book for the day. I had identified another problem area of my body. Just two months later in my journal, I wrote how panicked I was that a costume for my upcoming dance recital 
would expose my bare legs. And I was so scared about being exposed like that. And I expressed the need while I was while I was journaling, I expressed the need to slim down before the show. So I was 14 years old and I had identified yet another problem area with my body and I wanted to cover it because I thought these were wounds that people would see and I wouldn't accept that. And then eighth grade, uh, it was kind of at the eighth, the end of eighth grade and the beginning of high school that my eating disorder had started. And some of the catalysts that going back, I realized were number one, I just had this kind of underlying social anxiety and it was generalized and it was highly functioning and it didn't really impede about in a lot of my life, but I just kind of felt overwhelmed by the changes in my life. And obviously the end of eighth grade going into high school is a transition time. And there were so many things that I couldn't control and so many uncertain things that I thought if I could gain control of my intake, gain control of my consumption, everything else would be fixed and everything else would fall into place. I also, as we had talked about last week with the different risk factors associated with eating disorders, I also was a perfectionist. It was being, being praised by others, being highly perceived by others was a tremendous motivator in my life at this point and still is. And it fueled high academic ambition and achievement. It fueled philanthropic endeavors. It fueled extracurricular endeavors. It fueled taking advanced courses in school because of how that would look in another's eyes. And I think, too, you know, from the beginning, I was special in a way. I was the only girl of four kids. I had three brothers and was immediately unique. I stood out. And I felt that kind of from the beginning that there were different expectations of me. And I kind of prided myself in this. I took pride in the fact that, you know, people thought of me as different or special or, you know, able to achieve. And then also from the beginning, I had a dad who was special. He was blessed with a unique voice, a quick wit. And although his arena of expertise was one I wasn't really familiar with, because it was sports, (laughs) I recognized his celebrity. He was mad dog to the world, and I prided myself in that because he was dad to me. And then, you know, during elementary and middle school, I felt that I also lacked social skills and prowess, and I compensated for this lack of social skills by devoting myself to my education and my extracurriculars. I applied myself thoroughly amidst of lack of popularity. And in my, in my want, in my need to be perfect and driving to, to you know, attain this perfectionism, I wanted popularity. I wanted social prowess. I felt that I had achieved all other facets. And I felt that I was lacking that. And that need, that want, resulted in this distorted thought surrounding, ironically enough, a boy that I'd liked at the time. You know, this was around the time that you start noticing the other gender. And for me at 14 years old, I was, you know, I'd just gotten my braces off. I started kind of 
dressing a little bit nicer and, you know, learned how to straighten my hair and all of these things. So, you know, at the end of middle school, I started noticing boys and ironically enough, they started noticing me. So there was this one boy that I had feelings for at the time. And I think partly enough is because he was popular and he offered me something that I felt that I was lacking, which was this popularity and was this, was these social skills that I felt that I had never developed. And I rationalized his rejection because he didn't really like me back and he didn't really make, you know, a ton of, he didn't have any moves back. And I rationalized his rejection by fixing and controlling the aspect of my life that I could, which I felt was my weight. And I rationalized it also because I thought that if I reached a certain weight, if I reached a certain physical ideal, game over, he would like me. This is the answer that my eating disorder found to my need to be perfect. What aggravated this thought and what aggravated the start of my eating disorder was being positively regarded for thinness by others. At the end of eighth grade and going into high school, I had lost a little bit of weight. And at this time, it was kind of really unhealthy to lose weight because I was still, you know, finishing up puberty and I was still growing. But I did lose weight and I suddenly became aware of everything about myself, every single part, because other people were noticing specific things about how I looked. And then I then noticed specific things about how I looked. I spent a lot of time, you know, staring in the mirror, antagonizing about every single thing, antagonizing about what I saw in my reflection. So I was 14 years old and staring in the mirror And I was acutely aware of every single pound, every single extra inch of skin, every single calorie. So all of these things compiled and mounted. And then all of a sudden I was a freshman in high school. And in the fall of my freshman year of high school, I ran cross country. And over the summer going into high school, I needed to prepare for cross country. I needed to get in shape. (laughs) So I had to hit a certain mileage each week. I had to make sure that, you know, I was hitting a certain mileage each day and running every single day and becoming more flexible and becoming stronger so that I would be able to actually run <laughs> during the fall of uh, during the fall of my freshman year. And unfortunately, because of the timing and because of the fact that my thoughts about my body were becoming so destructive, running for me became a mechanism for me to lose weight. It was the vehicle by which I continued to control and shape my outer appearance. And even though the boy was kind of 
over at this point and all those other catalysts were kind of over at this point it was still underlying it was still aggravating this need to control and with running every single mile was directly correlated with weight loss and disassociating these these two things disassociating running with losing weight and disassociating running with food has been one of the most challenging things in recovery and during running cross country and also in the in the winter and in the spring i also run track indoor and outdoor track and so for the entirety of my freshman year i was running which with my consumption with my lack of consumption it was very detrimental and in 2015 i en- had ended up losing a, a whole lot more weight and at the start of my cross-country season, before I even really started running intensely, I journaled that my goal was to lose 10 pounds during the season. And that 10 pounds became the determinant of whether I succeeded or whether I failed. And from that point on, all I could ever think about was food, running, or my weight. And looking back in my journals, I noticed that Nearly every single journal entry after August of 2015, I charted my progress in weight loss, running, and how little I had eaten. Calorie counting and scale checking became the most compulsively destructive behaviors during this time. My insecurities of not being thin or pretty enough fed my need to control my eating and exercise because I thought those two things which were the, only, were the only ways to combat these insecurities. Controlling how much I ate and exercised were the vehicles by which I dispelled my insecurities, especially because I was socialized and I associated beauty with thinness. And I ended up losing a lot of weight, and that really didn't solve any problems. In fact, it only aggravated them, because all of a sudden, and this is kind of a common theme that we will chart, during this episode, but all of a sudden I noticed that being a certain weight wasn't enough. First it was one number, then it was a lower number, and it was a lower number, and then it was another lower number. The weight was never enough, even if I told myself it would be. And during freshman year as well, I, I think I struggled with a lot of social anxiety, and for the entirety of my freshman year, I never stepped foot in the cafeteria once. If you were to ask me during my freshman year at any single point what the cafeteria looked like or what the inside, like what the food lines were like or any questions about anything cafeteria related, I would not have been able to tell you because I did not see it for 10 months. And I neglected and I avoided food so much so that during lunch, I would find a spot in the, in the school where I could be alone. I would hide in the girls' locker room so that I wouldn't have to explain to anyone why I wasn't eating or why I hadn't gone to the cafeteria. I so heavily avoided situations where I felt that I would be in the spotlight. The cafeteria was a public space where I felt like I would be in the spotlight. And 
I also avoided situations where I would be forced to confront food. Because confronting food meant confronting the internalized wounds that I was dealing with, my insecurities, my lack of self-esteem. So in this way, my eating disorder was socially isolating. And this social isolation eventually led to depression. I had such a warped sense of self-discipline, which defined a lot of my high school career. During my freshman year, I would wake up, not eat breakfast, go to school, do homework for the entirety of the day, go to cross-country practice, run three, four, five, six miles, get picked up by my mom, chart exactly how many calories I burned, exactly how many miles I ran, exactly how many steps I took in my Fitbit, go home, take a shower, organize my schoolwork, finish my homework, and then finally, at around 6 or 7 p.m., I would lay eyes on food. It would be the first time my eyes the entirety of the day, even glanced at food. And then I would eat one portion of dinner, go to bed, and do the exact same thing the next day. This cycle was horrific. I had zero energy. I'd completely worn myself out. And if I wasn't before, I was a complete shell of my old self. Health-wise, this resulted in a lot of consequences. Number one, I lost my period. For an entire year, I did not menstruate because my body was in survival mode. And this is something I want to talk about a little bit further, especially as it relates to female athletes. Um, And it's something called the female athlete triad that we'll talk about a little bit further in another episode. But it health-wise, a lot of consequences. Socially, a lot of consequences. I rarely interacted with friends. I completely isolated myself and I lost formative years and formative memories in my development because of my ED. Also in terms of running, in terms of physical exertion, I pushed myself harder than ever. But this wasn't the kind of pushing that you want to do. This is the pushing harder where you're draining yourself. This is the pushing harder where you're killing yourself. I was unknowingly digging my own grave. This time of my life is shrouded in in self-doubt, in depression, in darkness, because I was ashamed of how I looked, that I thought I had an undesirable body, and I didn't want to formulate memories in that undesirable body. So nearly... Four years of memories like that in high school and two years afterwards were taken from me because of my eating disorder. And then all of a sudden kind of transitioning into my the second chapter of my eating disorder was that of binge eating. So during freshman year of high school, it was actually more like two years of high school, I struggled with anorexia. And then I permanently altered, neurologically altered my brain. Um, Not intentionally, but food became a reward system for me. So after a week of what I called strict dieting, which meant basically eating nothing, I would pig out on the weekends. I would binge eat 
on the weekends or one day of the weekend. And it became the reward system because food became the most ultimate and most problematic desired object in my life. And this is something we're going to talk about further as we get into chapter two. But, you know, as freshman year progressed and as high school progressed, I was broken. I was a broken girl that became more broken by the day. And ever since then, I've been picking up the scattered pieces and attempting to put them back together again. A metaphor that I like to use in talking about recovery and talking about my experience with eating, with an eating disorder, with multiple eating disorders, is that I, I felt, you know, before all this happened, I was kind of this, this glass structure. And it was magnificent and beautiful and, and shiny and, you know, all of those things. And then in freshman year, it broke apart and all of the glass pieces scattered on the floor. And I was broken in that way. And ever since then, six years later, I've been picking up the scattered pieces and attempting to form them back together again to reach that, that standard of that, of that glass structure that I felt was me. They've been the glass the glass pieces that broke have been waiting on the ground for someone to pick them up and put them back together. But every time that I pick up a piece to glue it to another, I'm cut by the broken glass. My hand starts bleeding and it's incredibly painful and I drop the piece and have to start over again because I hurt myself while picking up the broken piece. which is a metaphor for recovery because during recovery, you have to pick up the broken pieces as gently as you can to put yourself back together again. You have to pick up the pieces with as much care as you can because if not, they will remain in disarray. And when you glue the pieces back together, You know that it'll never be the same as the original glass structure, but it will account for the journey of disordered eating. This is also a metaphor for recovery because what has helped me in recovery and in treatment is picking up the broken glass pieces with another. When someone helps you to do so, it alleviates the pressure from your hand. When there is another hand underneath mine it diminishes that pressure and with its support under mine helps to lift the burden from my shoulders these glass pieces were not picked up for a long long time and that's something we'll see as we transition to Chapter two of my eating disorder, which was uh, binge eating disorder. So different from anorexia, as we had talked about last week, it is the most common eating disorder in America. And uh, in May of 2016, after my year of running, after not having, after not menstruating for an entire year, after struggling with anorexia, and after formulating these reward pathways, these neurological alterations of food as a reward, I developed binge eating disorder. So food and I's relationship became very complicated because food was used as a reward in my warped self-discipline. 
And I deprived myself for so long. I deprived my body for so long that it couldn't sustain survival mode any longer. My body was fighting for its life by turning to food. And in order to compensate for the year and a half of not eating, it wanted to overeat because it was in survival mode and it didn't want to be that way anymore. It wanted some wiggle room. (laughs) And then in the summer of 2016, going into sophomore year of high school, I ended up gaining a lot of weight because my body was holding on to every single last calorie, every single last pound, so that I wouldn't have to fall back into survival mode any longer. But with this weight gain, as I talked about before, being positively regarded for thinness, for weight loss, with this weight gain, I was so depressed. I journaled that I didn't ever want to be seen in a bathing suit because I couldn't stand to see myself in the mirror. And I journaled that I felt like I was suffocating, that I felt like I was drowning. And all of a sudden, the broken glass becomes very sharp. I then don't write about anything food, exercise, or body image related until six months later when I write that I don't know if I will even make it through the day and that I despise myself. So clearly I was steeped in a hopelessness and a panic that I couldn't seem to dig myself out of. And during this time and over the next couple of years, I really write sparingly about binge eating disorder because for me, it was the more shameful aspect of my eating disorder arc. When we talk about eating disorders, it's very limiting. And, you know, they tell you you have one or you have another or you fall under a certain category. But in general, and I think as research starts to develop, we will see that eating disorders kind of have an arc. They're not as limiting and they're not as confining as we once supposed. And for me, I noticed this firsthand. I experienced this firsthand because my arc was from anorexia to then binge eating disorder. And with binge eating disorder and with anorexia and with all these problems with my health, I obviously eventually gained back my menstruation, but then I started getting sick. My stomach and my digestive system, no doubt, had been through the ringer. And I never really got sick willingly. But involuntarily, my body made me sick because my stomach, my digestive system was so weak. It could not handle my consumption. Now, I want to make clear that I'm not proclaiming a bulimic diagnosis because I never, ever made myself purge. But involuntarily, my body made me sick. And it happened for years during my binge eating disorder. I would throw up because my My body, my digestive system could not handle what was happening to it. So just as it had rebelled in survival mode by losing my menstruation and trying to keep myself alive, it had also rebelled in regurgitating a lot of the food that I was digesting, which was a lot of food. (laughs) And this transition of my eating disorder felt like a completely different Kira 
which resulted in identity confusion and was very detrimental to my mental health. And part of one of the things that I realized in recovery is that letting go of your eating disorder is more than letting go of one thing. It also means letting go of a part of yourself. As I had said before, binge eating disorder was the more shameful aspect of my ED arc. And I claimed and identified anorexia in the end of my senior year of high school. But I only claimed binge eating disorder a couple of months back. So really, this is a more recent thing. Um, but during, during this time, I kind of started to notice and observe different triggers that I had. And, and triggers is something that we'll talk about. Um, triggers and trauma is something that we'll talk about a little bit further later on. But I, the triggers for me that are most uh, resonant are that of the scale and that of a bathing suit. Um, if I wasn't a certain number on the scale, I covered myself as if anyone could see me, could read it imprinted on my skin, could read that number, could read the shame imprinted on my skin. And this is, you know, very reminiscent of what I had talked about before at the Jersey Shore in eighth grade. I felt like I was in the spotlight and, the, and bathing suits for me were very triggering because they revealed what I was so ashamed of. And in this way, a bathing suit and a scale were kind of entangled as triggers. So if one was not the way I desired it to be, I was filled with shame. I was filled with regret. And the scale was an internalized pressure. And I guess more comforting in that way because it wasn't exposed. Because the bathing suit was an externalized public pressure where I thought everyone would be able to see my shame on display and come to life in my body. So this is something I want to talk about further in another episode. But as we transition on, um, we're coming to the end of, of chapter two, which is college for me. So after high school, it kind of my eating disorder had really gone unseen, unheard. It was kind of in the back burner. And I, in a lot of ways, had repressed it and not talked about it. Um, and then I go to college. And my fall semester was blindingly euphoric. I had four months of not thinking a single wink about food, about my weight, about my body. I hadn't brought a scale with me. So for four months, I hadn't stepped on a scale, which was the first time that I had actually abstained from a scale in four years. And it was liberating. After stepping on a scale every single day for four years. I felt an acute sense of belonging and normalcy that before I had never quite grasped. And this is because every single day I was, was eating with other people. Shame, shame surrounded food for me. Shame, surround, shame surrounded eating. And for the first time, I was eating every single meal with another person. And I was also held accountable because all of my friends at the time had pretty normative eating practices. So I had developed and kind of... Uh, taken a hold of some of theirs, which was great for me in recovery. Um, and then I also was, was exercising a lot, and, and it was unknowing, but as a dual campus student, 
I was walking back and forth between the two campuses every single day. And then there was also football games and parties. And I was, you know, taking so many steps, but I didn't really care about what I was doing. I was living for the first time in four years. And it was the happiest I had ever been. And then it came, it really kind of uh, came all crashing down during Thanksgiving break. Um, going home for Thanksgiving break. I had been at school for four months now. I had not seen my family um, and not seen a lot of my friends. And I go home for Thanksgiving break. And I had no intention of stepping on a scale. Um, No intention of charting what I ate. No intention of doing any of those things because I had developed a lot of normative healthy practices over the last four months. But every single person... I saw during Thanksgiving commented on my weight and how I look to be less than when I left for college. And this being positively regarded for weight loss was incredibly disorienting. All of a sudden, I didn't know what I was doing. And I wanted to affirm their regard. So the last day before I'm, before going back to South Bend, I decided to step on a scale. And literally the rest of my life changed in that moment because I had lost close to 10 pounds, the magical 10. <laughs> and I had no idea I wasn't trying to lose weight, but I just happened to. My body was rejoicing in its health and finally returned to some kind of normalcy after four years of not doing that. And it kind of just speaks to your body's intention to survive and your body's intention to thrive. And in this case, my body was doing that. But I hadn't been that low. I hadn't been that light. In over two, in over three years, I believe. And it was kind of terrifying. Ignorance was bliss until I wasn't ignorant anymore. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't enough. My eating disorder had returned. The two weeks after I got back from Thanksgiving before going home for Christmas break, we had a two and a half. two and a half weeks before going back, I changed everything I had been doing before going home. I now exercised and ran on the treadmill in the morning. I became acutely aware of every single thing I was putting in my mouth and I wanted to lose more weight. My eating disorder had come back rearing its head and I craved more weight loss and I craved the positive regard from others who said that I looked smaller. I craved control. But as soon as I came back for Christmas break, the first thing that I did after putting down my luggage in my room was step on a scale. I was expecting to have lost more weight because now I was being so particular about everything that I was doing 
and I was engaging in a lot of the behaviors that I had engaged in when I was dealing with anorexia. Stepped on that scale, ended up seeing a one and a half pound weight gain. I gained one and a half pounds and it was earth shattering. I was so ashamed of one and a half pounds that everything else came crashing down. For the next two weeks at home, I faced almost constant binge eating, the worst that it's ever been. And I isolated myself yet again. I refused to form memories in an undesirable body. And the shame and the panic was debilitating. I felt that I destroyed myself yet again. And I convinced myself during these, during these uh, two weeks, I convinced myself that the only saving grace was going back to school because school was the place where I was healthy. But I went back to school and I realized that a change of location was not going to solve all of my problems. I still binged and I still was depressed and I was very unhappy with who I had become. So in that way, my second semester of of what I had of it was a test in the face of panic. I was devastated. Retrospectively, I had faced many panic attacks during this time. And it was so bad. It was the lowest I'd ever been. And I decided to seek help. The way I was feeling about myself was so detrimental that I thought I would drop out of school and end up in an inpatient facility. If it had gone a week more of what it was going like, I would not be here today. And they tell you, when you're dealing with feelings like this, it's important to seek help. And it's important to tell someone. And I was a full believer in that. And then all of a sudden, seeking help wasn't easy. In fact, it was tremendously difficult. I needed an expert, someone who was qualified to help me face my eating disorder. Yet I was a gateway student at Holy Cross. So we were not allowed the counseling center at Notre Dame, even though Notre Dame happened to have a licensed specialist in eating disorders, which was available at their counseling center, and the Holy Cross did not. And after explaining my situation and asking for help, I was told that I was not permitted that service. And... Then I kind of went to plan B. Let me find someone off campus who specialized and who has expertise in this field. And I also was not able to find someone off campus. Even though that was a barrier in my recovery because finding someone off campus meant I had to walk to their place every single day. But 
South Bend's options were very limited, and all of the people in South Bend who I had looked at were booked. So in effect, I was denied help, and I was silenced. But continuing in self-advocacy was most important because eventually I did end up finding a counselor through Holy Cross who offered support that would save my life and jumpstart my healing process. I have her to thank for being here today. But as you can see with this story, this is one of the things that I'm passionate about in reducing the barriers that limit those wanting to recover. There shouldn't be barriers in wanting to heal. And this is something we can talk about further in another, in another episode. But during this time, when I was dealing with earth-shattering issues for me, I had also to learn a lot about self-advocacy, you know, which is important today and I feel like has fueled a lot of my endeavors afterwards. But there shouldn't be barriers in wanting to heal. And now we go into the third and final chapter of my eating disorder story, which is that of recovery. And recovery for me spurred a healing from deep chasms that were left untouched for many, many years. On February 1st of 2019, I first told someone about my eating disorder and powerfully proclaimed it as a part of my story. And this telling came in the form of the poem. This is what I had read last week. So this was February 1st of 2019. And on February 1st of 2020, it was the first time I ever admitted to myself that I needed someone's help to heal. And this is, you know, the start of the third chapter of my eating disorder. And it's one ongoing today. It's one not finished, but. In recovery, there are many relationships that you need to solve and you need to fix and you need to heal. And two of those that I focused on the most were, number one, my relationship with food, and number two, my relationship with myself. My relationship with food was before the latter because your relationship with food is just the object, and food is just the object, object that absorbs your attention when your relationship with yourself is facing dissonance. So when recovery starts, I start to repair my, my relationship with food. Instead of, you know, being something to fight or control or restrict, it is something that I celebrate, that I glorify as necessary to fuel my body. And interestingly enough, me- memory reformation, for me, kind of went hand in hand with food restoration. So as food became something that I celebrated, my memory surrounding food became more positive. It was no longer a shameful time. It was something to rejoice in because I, it, was, it was the appearance of my refusal to succumb. One of the harder things in, in dealing with recovery and in, with eating disorders was, as I said before, my relationship with myself because prior to this point, my relationship with myself was solely based on the weight on the scale. My self-definition was placed in the hands of three digits. 
and the toxicity inherent in the scale has been something I have struggled with for six years. As of right now, nine months into recovery, I have chosen to forego the scale. <laughs> it's, uh, I've not weighed myself in nearly six months, and it's not something that I plan to do until I confront that as one of my formal triggers. And for me, happiness in that sense has been something to redefine. Because happiness for four years was I'll never, or for six years was I'll never be the weight I want, and therefore I'll never be happy. Happy memories were not formed because of this. And one of the key skills in recovery is learning how to habituate new ways of thinking about yourself, to foster new beliefs about yourself that are multifaceted, dynamic, ever-evolving. False beliefs fuel eating disorders, fuel mental illness, which is why it takes so much work to uproot these things, recover, heal, and form new, true beliefs about yourself. One of the other things that I kind of learned in recovery is, uh, is that of mindfulness. And this term has kind of flown around a lot in our society today. And for me, in my experience with mindfulness, it means creating magical moments every single day. Becoming present in every moment. Through sensory stimulation. So as it relates to food, all five senses combine to make a pleasant eating experience. So I had to lean into this tactic of identifying, gratifying, and celebrating the sensory experience that eating is. I had to redefine my experience with food with this in mind to extend my positive eating experiences, which kind of combined companionship, whether it was family with friends, mindfulness, presence in the moment. Um, And this is one of the things that helped to heal my relationship with food. Exercise, for me, is kind of something harder to define. It has often been a point of contention in my life, and it feels triggering. As I rebuild my relationship with physical exertion, I'm kind of taking a similar tactic that I did with food, which is trying to view it in a positive light. Something intuitive that will help bring peace and center my life. An appreciation of my body for what it can do. Exercise should elicit happiness and joy. And I had to formally associate exercise with positive memories to deconstruct the trigger that it represented in my life. But this is also a caveat, right? Exercise must be accompanied with forgiveness and mercy. If exercise is not a daily focal point, you got to forgive yourself. If you don't exercise every day, it's not the end of the world. Your body will tell you what it needs. And it might tell you that it needs a day off or a week off or a month off. You have to practice self-compassion in this way and forgive yourself. My weight, which is kind of the culmination of both food and exercise for me, because those are the things that, those are the vehicles by which I controlled my weight, has been a landmark of sorts in my life, a defining figure of each part of my life. If you were to ask me to look through my phone and name the exact weight that I was in every single picture on my phone during high school and in the past and during college or during college at this point as well, I I would be able to tell you exactly how much I weighed in every single picture because it was a landmark, because it was the defining measure of my self-value and my self-worth. I've had to continually reassure myself 
that a fluctuating weight is normal and that a certain weight is temporary. The weight on the scale was a determinant for my mood, and it often resulted in disappointment, shame, panic, and then became a lens at which I viewed myself through. And this kind of explains like the body dysmorphic thought that I've struggled with. For example, if I step on a scale and I see a number higher than desired, I look in the mirror and I see myself as bigger, opposed to just seconds beforehand. And this is an identity threat and elicits the fight or flight or freeze response from our amygdala in the brain. And my emotional response is paralysis. I freeze. And it's evident, it's ev- evident every single time that I step on a scale. I repress, oppress, sorry, repress emotions and, and memories because of the anxiety and disappointment they might conjure. So in this way, I was trying to protect myself from the anxiety and dis- disappointment by freezing, by repressing these things. But in my recovery, I'm developing the skills necessary to confront these identity threats, writing a new narrative that will guide my future, where I do not have to be threatened anymore. During an eating disorder, you believe that there's many things wrong with you. And one of the statements that I've had to kind of come to terms with in recovery is believing that there's nothing wrong with me. And when you let go of that thought, you're freeing yourself from the obligation of suffering and prompting yourself to begin to heal. When there's nothing wrong with you, there are no problem areas to fix. And you can heal. During recovery, you're trying to understand your own mental process as you're being negatively affected by them. It's disorienting. It's exhausting. It's panic-inducing. You feel trapped in an endless ring. It feels repetitive. It feels cyclical. But it's worth it. And finally, perhaps the most notable thing in recovery is the notion that healing is vocational. My eating disorder, ironically enough, has informed my career goals. This podcast is my first attempt at storytelling, which is what I hope to do. I want to amplify voices, including my own. As I continue to recover, my calling will continue to be revealed. And in this process of reconstructing your identity, which is in large part what recovery is, your, vega- your values become clear. It's important to note that recovery and healing is not linear. It is constant trial and error. I have good days and I have bad days. And bad days don't tell me that I've undone recovery. They are just an indication that our bodies and our minds fluctuate. There are highs and lows. And on the bad days, I remind myself that the negative feelings that I have towards myself are temporary. They will pass. They don't need to be ruminated in. Again, healing is cyclical and repetitive, but it's worth it. And finally, in regards to this podcast, 
in order to understand fully, completely, deeply who I am, you must understand why I am. And in order to understand why I am, you must understand my eating disorder. In this way, my ED does not define my personhood, but it does contribute to how I've come to be. It has shaped my life inadvertently and without restriction. This episode, my story, my testimony, was made with my parents, my brothers, my closest friends in mind. In effect, this episode is a letter to them to help understand me. Initially, I was hesitant about starting this podcast because I thought I might permanently define myself as the girl who had an eating disorder, but I realized you only get one life, and I had an eating disorder in mine. There's nothing to be ashamed about that, nothing to hide about that. Why not be open about our experiences in this one lifetime? If not, I perpetuate the isolating nature of eating disorder culture, and through this podcast and through my intention to become a storyteller and to amplify voices. I'm creating art out of the very thing that has threatened to destroy me. So that, everyone, concludes my eating disorder story for now. Next week, I'll be sharing about the science behind trauma and how this manifests itself within certain triggers. So tune in on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And if you're interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment still does.